Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. Joining me today to discuss Shut the Door from the 1990 album Repeater is Father Christopher Foley, bass player of the band Luxury since the early 1990s and... Orthodox priest since 2006, I believe. You can see him in the new award-winning documentary film Parallel Love, the story of a band called Luxury. Father Christopher, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. How do you prefer to be addressed in these uh, interactions? Uh, Father, Chris? Oh, you can just call me Chris. <laughs> okay. That's, that's fine. <laughs> no, it's a... It's a very interesting situation. I sh- I'm sure we'll get into it. I actually, I was kicking around uh, introducing you with like a late night show monologue style joke, which would be something like, um, yeah, you know, you hear about this guy, uh, Father Christopher Foley. Yeah, you know, he he took a vow of poverty. Uh, and then after being in an indie rock band for a few years, he decided to be a priest too. <laughs> Have you heard that before? Is that, uh, is that a joke that's been <laughs> thrown around? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought <laughs> maybe interesting. Had... Ju- yeah, juxtaposition of two lives here. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And now that I've said it, of course, I, I can't take it back. But I was like, you know, now you've done it. <laughs> now, now I've done it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So I mean, I hardly know where to start with your very interesting story. Um, I'm I'm checking out this documentary about you in in between. Uh, bits of being a dad. I've watched like three quarters of the documentary and I enjoy it very much. And the word Fugazi comes up, uh, you know, a few times in reference to your times. band. Yeah. Let's, before we even get into Fugazi, uh, can you sort of summarize your your <laughs> your life story for the listeners? Because um, it's really oh, interesting. You, you can just hit... Hit the big attractions if you want, the big main points. Oh, gosh, yeah. Like Reader's Digest version. Um well, certainly, I guess now that I'm clergy, it's my vocation. I mean, I I was raised in you know somewhat of a religious home, but uh, really in my teenage years, became very enamored with the whole underground, you know, punk scene. <laughs> uh, kind of in the mid '80s, I grew up in Atlanta, um, and to me, just like punk rock, just kind of answered all of these <laughs> kind of questions I had and. You know, I was kind of struggling being in a religious environment where I just saw, you know, just kind of a general, uh, I don't know, just kind of a hypocrisy and a, I don't know, an upper (laughs) white middle class kind of world. And I don't know, the punk rock thing, just I I was so floored by it because here were some people that really believed something and were just, you know, wanting to make a positive change. Um, I kind of discovered the straight edge movement and bands like seven seconds and stuff that were really trying to do something positive. And then, you know, found minor threat and the whole DC scene. Uh, I, I really think I would not be the, the person I am today without kind of the influence of the, the DC punk scene, just the DIY attitude, all of that just got really into, you know, rights of spring minor threat and, um, you know, we can get into a little bit when I we talk about the history of Fugazi. But, um, you know, fast forward, I, I started playing in bands all through high school and college. Uh, found some guys in college and we just kept playing and performing together and eventually got signed uh, to a label uh, out of Seattle called Tooth and Nail Records and toured for a number of years. And 
Uh, make a long story short, we, we have wound up putting out five albums and at some point felt a, I guess, a call, if you will, to uh, pursue uh, the priesthood in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I was not raised in that tradition, but uh, kind of discovered that in my college years uh, and just was really drawn to kind of this ancient, more ascetic, kind of mystical Christian tradition that really had nothing to do with kind of the modern uh, kind of evangelical movement. And I was really taken by it and wound up going to seminary, was ordained 2006, and have been a priest now for about 15 years. You know, I realized I don't know much about the Orthodox Church, and I guess I had always assumed that members were mostly like Eastern European immigrants or something. But yeah, I was thinking it, Foley, that's not a, that seems like yeah, a pretty that's Irish, Irish name. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, I mean, it's uh, it's been called kind of the best kept secret in the West. It's actually the second largest body of Christendom, um, but it is mostly Eastern European, Middle Eastern, Northern African phenomenon. But there is a growing movement of, you know, I guess Westerners kind of discovering it and embracing it. In your experience... Uh, and and uh, I, listeners, forgive me if I if I dig into this a little, but I'm interested because I was raised Catholic, and it seems like uh, the mm. Orthodox Church is pretty close to Catholicism in in the grand scheme of things, uh, from what yeah, I've read. Yeah, you know, very yeah, very similar. I mean, the the first millennia, it was pretty much one church, and then there was yeah. a a nasty split in 1054 <laughs> between the East and the West over kind of theological and um, I don't know, kind of church governance and things like that. Um, and so the e- the eastern half of basically the Roman Empire at the time became what is now known as the the Eastern Orthodox Communion of Churches. So it would be similar. Yeah, and know. and and so you and you guys do a communion and um, uh, confession right. stuff like that. And I, yeah, yeah. So, so I was yeah. just wondering what's for, for people who aren't like Eastern European immigrants. Well, in your experience, how do people come to this church? Like, what's what do you think? in their mind is is the draw what what brings them to this particular uh, branch of christianity yeah i mean i you know obviously the the immigrants are kind of raised in that and so they just continue in that but you know like my parish in particular we're probably about 80 or 90% what we call converts to the orthodox church i i think it's people that are kind of disillusioned with kind of the modern western christian movement um that it just kind of gotten hijacked by all kinds of things, <laughs> kind of a business model or a political agenda or, a, you know, kind of an entertainment thing, or I, I don't know, just, yeah. uh, I think people that are just longing for something more, you know, their, their beef isn't so much with God as it is maybe with, uh, you know, modern Christianity. So it's kind of this desire to look backwards, um, in order to move forwards, I guess, if you will, kind of a, I mean, in a way, kind of, you know, I keep thinking kind of punk rock prepared me for it because I, I was kind of looking for something that was, um, you know, kind of not the norm. That was kind of countercultural. Yeah. Um, so. And and so not only you, but two other members of the band Luxury are uh, are priests. That's That's got to be some kind of a record right there. <laughs> I think we're probably the only rock band that has ever existed in the history of the world, perhaps. With three Orthodox priests, I don't know. And it, it made me wonder because part of the story, as told in your documentary, was you know you were of of course being on Tooth and Nail Records, uh, you sort of had a Christian rock audience, although the your band wasn't really didn't fit the mold of that. However, 
part of the story was your Christian audience being a little uncomfortable with lyrics that seemed to like deviate from typical heterosexuality or just were a little questionable in that regard. And so I was wondering nowadays, since you're still in luxury, and I, I guess you told me you were just um, you were just practicing with those guys, right? Um, are there any are there any grumbles from your parishioners about you being in this rock band, or are those days mostly over and they're kind of cool with it now? Yeah, I mean. You know, I, I don't say that, you know, I kind of advertise it from the pulpit, so to speak, but my parishioners know that I have this, you know, kind of other life. And, uh, you know, it was so strange when the, the film actually screened in Winston-Salem. Um, I wasn't really talking much about it. And finally, one of my parishioners pulled me aside and said, you know, Father, you really got to, you know, let us know when it's happening. We want to come see it. And so that was the first time I'd ever really mentioned it. Uh, but you know, half the crowd that was there were my parishioners and it was just, (laughs) it was kind of an interesting coming together of these two worlds, but it was, it's good. It just, I feel like it just kind of keeps me integrated that, you know, I'm, I'm a priest, but I'm just, you know, Christopher Foley, the bass player too, you know, we're just, it's just, we don't segment our life into these kind of separate things. So in a way, I feel like it's just been healthy for me to just integrate my whole life and my whole story, um, and my experience together and uh, it's it's kind of awkward at times but not yeah. i um, i have had the experience of being a uh, a high school teacher and then having some students or former students come see one of my bands play and that always felt a little <laughs> awkward to me so i imagine it's a little similar yeah you, i guess in your in your band life you just you don't get to wear as cool of an outfit um i mean those <laughs> those orthodox like what do you what do you call those like capes that are like these like sort of silvery yeah, yeah. yeah those things are amazing yeah, that's vestments like, felonian yeah yeah that's glam rock <laughs> stuff man well um, yeah well and then like the black cassock that we wear kind of around it's kind of our version of the western tab collar or something i thought man you know we should have been a goth band yeah we it, would have had a really you, you guys have the best of both worlds those cassocks they're like they're super goth but then there's like the the you know the real fancy um stuff that is just like i don't know david bowie ish like at a certain period um yeah uh, you, you guys get some uh some sweet get-ups so um yeah but but definitely i i recommend people uh check out this um this documentary and you know we'll we'll get to talk about it at the end but i guess it's um it's streaming in some places right now yeah it's on most of the streaming platforms amazon and um you know apple music and uh google play i don't think it's on netflix at this point but how about fugazi then let's let's talk about them a little bit more and do you remember um when you first got into them and how they affected you in the early days Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we had this great little scene in Atlanta, you know, just a lot of bands, a lot of, you know, camaraderie, and uh, <clears throat> a lot of people that really liked the the DC stuff. And I can recall very clearly a good friend of mine, Brian Najedli, who went on to play uh, for Afterwards, which was on Sandwich Records, uh, Amanda McKay's label. Um, <laughs> he had this connection in DC, and he wound up passing a tape around like in early 1988, it was the first Fugazi demos. And so everybody started, you know, dubbing copies of them. Like, oh man, this is Guy and Ian's new band. And Mm -hmm. so like, we all knew the song. So when they came and played in June of 88, um, (laughs) like they were surprised because everybody knew all the songs. (laughs) 
when they when they came and played that first time, and that was before anything had been released. Oh, you know, wow, that was okay. before you know the, the first EP, and um, and that was just amazing to see them. It was just like, whoa, this is you know, you're kind of expecting the you know rights of spring minor threat thing, and so once you got over kind of being disappointed that it wasn't that, then it was like, man, I think this is even better. <laughs> I would have to agree. Yeah, so just I, you know, followed them from the beginning, and every time they they came to Atlanta, I I looked back at the Fugazi Live series. I think it was at every show they played in Atlanta. There was a few times where they would play two nights in a row, and you know, I'd only go to one of the two, but um, all the way up until the end. Um, yeah, I just I love them. They were just a huge influence on me, both musically. Um, you know, I'm a bass player, so, you know, Joe Lawley is just, I, I think someone on your Facebook group called him the John Entwistle of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> punk rock bass players. And, uh, yeah, just really influenced my playing, just loved his, um, kind of repetitive, almost kind of, you know, reggae-ish, dub-ish kind of thing. And, um, and certainly just the the dynamics of the band, you know, the loud, quiet, you know, just they did it so perfectly, the the singing back and forth. And then philosophically, I mean, again, I don't think I'd be where I am today. They were such an influence on me. Just philosophically, just the whole do-it-yourself attitude mm -hmm. um, that punk rock isn't just, a you know, something to just, you know, fill your life with debauchery or something. It's about change and transformation and and making a positive change and so just really influenced by their you know what they would do keeping the door prices down all ages raising money for local charities so you know our little scene in atlanta kept trying to do all of that we would put on shows at various places we would raise money for local homeless shelters or habitat for humanity uh, i helped put together a compilation of uh, some great atlanta bands between like 85 and 1990 and that launched a label um, and then kind of once I got into college and luxury started, um, we started a collective called the cut and paste collective, which was like just a group of bands from all over the country. And we kind of shared a, a similar mindset about supporting each other's music. And, you know, at that time we were actually in touch with Ian and Guy a little bit, and they were really supportive of what we were doing. And we ran a venue, uh, a few of us did while I was in college. And, you know, I would say it was all influenced by that kind of the activism that's more than just the music it's a movement hmm. uh just doing something to just make a change and it's not about you know being a rock star or you know whatever and uh and so was this was fugazi a common touch point with the other guys in luxury like w when you first got together and started playing with them were they already like was that a big part of their musical influences too no, no, not really. I mean, we were from very disparate musical backgrounds, like all the way from like, you know, Smith's Bauhaus, Peter Murphy on one side to like Kiss Led Zeppelin on another side. And then I came in with all my DC influence. But, you know, as we started playing together, we're sharing music. And so they did they did get into uh, Fugazi and that ethic you know, I would say I kind of brought that into the band hmm. and then the band that really did it for us, that kind of helped us kind of have a vision was actually Shudder to Think. Yeah. Um, because here's a band that's kind of from that scene, cut from that same mold, but is doing something, you know, 
kind of the operatic vocals and the kind of discordant music and the melodies and you know so yeah i was just going to say exactly like when i listen to your songs it's like yeah beautiful vocals over these like sort of dissonance um uh, uh sort of bracing uh guitars and it's uh, it's like um it's a real nice contrast and it's it, yeah i think i think shudder to think is like if you uh, in your documentary it's uh it says like fugazi meets the smiths and i'm like yeah, yeah. i can i can sort of hear that but then yeah shudder to think is even more of an immediate point of comparison definitely yeah 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 um well cool so today we're talking about shut the door um pretty pretty big song for fugazi it's of course one of their great closers it's the final song on the album repeater um not counting the repeater plus three songs version so it's uh, it's in their top 20 most played songs apparently they played it 321 times making it number 16 um oh wow is your perception of it that among Fugazi fans, this is this is one of the big ones? I I certainly think so. I mean, it's it's certainly my you know we're not ranking yet, but <laughs> certainly a five for me. But oh, spoiler, uh, come on. I, I, I sorry. I I just I think a lot of people uh, like it. It's great live. Uh, you know, the version on instrument is probably like the best eight minutes ever recorded <laughs> <laughs> might, might be know, my favorite stretch of the film yeah also by way of introduction um you know we like to do a little research and uh say what we can find out about this and i think you've done the same research i have and in the book dance of days by mark anderson and mark jenkins um which is like you know one of the only sort of authoritative sources out there uh in in book form about fugazi really so I think it's a common place people go to learn about the band. But in that book, it says that this song was inspired by the overdose death of a woman named Catherine Braley, um, who had been in the band Sybil, which was formerly called Nike Chicks, um, uh, one of the first all-women DC punk bands. And uh, I believe she had been Alec Mackay's girlfriend. So... Given that that I that I had read that you know just googling about this song and checking things out, I did something that I have not otherwise done since the beginning of this podcast, um, and I reached out to Ian Mackay about this, and um, I I didn't even really want to know about the what he was thinking writing the song. What I was asking about is um, this person Catherine Braley because uh, other than um, the connection to shut the door, I couldn't find anything about her, any information about her life other than that and about the band she had been in. And like that kind of thing really strikes me as sad if, you know, if, if something like this is written about somebody and there's just otherwise sort of no record of her and, and I don't know who she is, who she was, who she meant to people. So basically I wrote to Ian Mackay just sort of asking like if he would care to just tell me anything about um you know who she was um but he he kind of demurred on that um and I'll I'll tell you the words that that he wrote to me he said uh given that this is a public forum I wouldn't feel comfortable going into the specific circumstances that led me to write shut the door but I can say in more general terms that I was trying to imagine what might be going on inside the head of a person who was really struggling with existence 
and juxtaposing that internal struggle with the resulting exterior fallout. End quote. Mm. Um, and yeah, in his reply to me, he didn't um, he didn't directly answer the question at all. He didn't mention her at all. So um, and it makes me wonder if um, you know maybe. It was, in fact, inspired by her death, but um, maybe it's not really information that he likes being out there. Um, maybe it's maybe he would prefer people to think of this song as, you know, in more general terms, um, not about one person, but about, um, you know, the the experience of of addiction and and so on. Um, but that's just me speculating. He didn't say that exactly. Um, but yeah, I guess I just thought I'd share that with the listeners. And um, yeah, wow. what what do you think about that? <clears throat> yeah, I mean that that makes total sense. I mean cuz you, you know you can interpret the song about, you know, this specific instance and I mean I guess it's obvious that it was because of that experience um but I think it has a larger theme. <laughs> like like he was saying that it is just this bigger theme about you know what are the things we do in life, you know, to numb out, you know, to try to be to be free, but they actually enslave us mm-hmm. and you know, kind of do the opposite. Uh, it's kind of a bigger theme. I mean, even its place within that album, you know, that album is, is so much about, you know, the problems with, you know, consumption and, mm-hmm. you know, gr- you know, greed and merchandise, you know, to, this is just another song on that theme of just the, the futility of, um, you know, that like addiction can be, you know, looking for a way out, but it actually enslaves you and then ultimately just kills you. Yeah. And I guess I didn't think about it too much before, but I guess something you can think is like the title of the album repeater. There are some themes about, you know, just things that are repeated actions. And of course, like the, the title track is just, um, you know, these repeated deaths from gun violence and stuff. But, um, you Mm -hmm. can, read this song is just yeah the the repetition of like you're you're hooked into this cycle of addiction and it uh, eventually leads to death yeah and i love how he just yells you know like i love how the the lyrics you know follow a certain pattern each verse it's uh-huh. the same lines and he starts with the first person like he's that person yeah and then that chorus you know then it switches to that second person she's not breathing but um you know when he's from that first person, I love how the end of each verse, you know, he says, have you ever been free? And that's when it just builds and becomes cathartic. Or have you ever been cruel? It seems like that first verse is definitely about, you know, the the heroin and, or the addiction. And that second verse is about kind of what it does to yourself, mm-hmm. you know, how it just it destroys yourself and, and you destroy all the relationships around you. You know, I never meant to be cruel. Have you ever been cruel? You know, it's just so powerful. Yeah, the um, the perspective in this song is certainly one that's interesting to look at. Yeah, uh, taking the first person perspective and talking about addiction. Um, and, I, you know, one of the things that comes to mind at first is like, it's a real sort of growth from the kind of stuff he had been writing in Minor Threat. Like, you know... Um, it specifically uh, in the song um, "Out of Step," right? He's you mm-hmm. know talking about he doesn't do drugs, and he says the line, "At least I can fucking think," right? There's this right. real attitude, 
and kind of a self-righteousness thing. yeah and this is a real evolution right. over that because he gets into I the point so of too. view of someone who is thinking um albeit in like muddled and contradictory terms but he's trying to understand what they're thinking and accepting that you know this is a person with a mind but you know they're just they're sort of trapped in this um crazy um mess of contradictions that is addiction yeah i think you know it's it's empathy you know, like I, when he's so cathartically, you know, screaming, she's not breathing, she's not moving, she's not coming back. Like, it's one thing to just be anti-drug, but it's another thing to see somebody you love and care for destroy themselves and then die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it it, it, it it hits home and, you know, you realize this is a real struggle for this person. And, you know, I just sense a real empathy. And I think using that first person... As, as a definite step away from kind of those earlier Ian songs, for sure. Yeah. And, I mean, as far as those those lines that have contradictions, I mean, I think, like, in a classical songwriting sense, this is maybe Ian at his absolute best. Um, it, it's like it, makes, like, it makes me think of if Cole Porter had written a song about addiction it might be something like this. Like, the, there's, mm. the lines are so clever, all right? He, and he maintains this thing, right? I broke the surface, like, a, uh, presumably puncturing the skin with a needle. Um, I broke the surface mm-hmm. so that I can breathe. I closed my eyes uh, so that I can see, like, you know, and, and experience the drug. I tied my arm, like, tie it off so the veins pop out, but, uh, you know, in order to be free burning the fire to to stay cool melting the drug in a spoon in a spoon like a right. to, to shoot it i think to to call it clever is like belies how impactful and sad and depressing the song is but it is really a word that comes to mind like it's just just real genius songwriting and i think the music well two things the first thing is it made me think about the song heroin by velvet underground me too yeah um, and I went back and kind of read the lyrics there and it's like, oh man, this is depressing. This is like, you know, the person Ian is writing about could have written <laughs> that song. And, and just the way the music accompanies the, it's almost like in heroin, it's like, as the music gets more, you know, frantic and it speeds up, you have the sense of, okay, now this is the person the, the drug is kicking in. And I started thinking about that with shut the door too, mm-hmm. that how it goes from this very kind of frantic beginning into that real quiet, smooth, repetitive uh, verses that it's like, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've never done heroin, but uh, yeah. you know, just from what I've, you know, kind of heard it, that that's kind of how the, the drug works. It's like starts off kind of, mellow like that and then it like you know it it kind of builds up or i also thought that maybe each verse and each chorus was like this person's struggle with their addiction yeah like they come down off the the high and then they're kind of back in this place and then they're struggling with it again and they want another hit and that's when the music starts building up again you know i don't know if they were thinking about that when they were writing the song but yeah, and I was thinking about that um, specifically watching the instrument clip again. And in that mm-hmm. version live, um, whoever's doing sound, I guess 
I actually I forget what I forget what date that was. Um, I'm guessing maybe this was back in the Joey P sound guy days. But uh, regardless, like he puts this big echo on the kick drum, and yeah. so it just like really hit me listening back to it. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a slow heartbeat, like mm. the heartbeat of someone who is dying uh, of an of an overdose. Maybe like their their body is shutting down. Um, and that's, and that's of course, uh, followed up by this, you know, cacophony of, um, guitars that could, you know, maybe symbolize death. Um, mm. yeah, that, that was really impactful on this, on, on a rewatch for me. Yeah. Well, and the thing I thought on that part, you know, there's that long musical interlude, you know, after the second chorus Yeah, and, uh, where it's almost like it almost falls apart, but the, you know, they're still grooving with it. And then. Uh, Brendan starts hitting that bell and I started thinking this is almost like you know the tolling of the bell Mm -hmm. you know like at a funeral you know and uh, and then it comes back and then I mean it's almost it's dead quiet I mean everybody is just enraptured and it's just so quiet in that part when they come back in with the groove and Guy and Ian are kind of doing this like dance back and forth and then those guitars come in for that those quick little bursts and uh man it's just so powerful i was telling my (laughs) 12 year old that i was doing this and uh and so we were sitting around at the dinner table and i I, so i played him that part from instrument and my 12 year old was like yeah dad i I think you played this for us like 300 times before Because like, oh man, isn't this brilliant? That's so great. And it's just so funny. Such a dad moment, you know. Dad, stop playing Fugazi. (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) That's gonna be me, I'm sure. Well, what do you think uh shut the door so I can leave? And that that caps all these very amazing um contradictory lines. Yeah. So it's like um both telling somebody shut the door like you know get out of here so i can you know get high uh, all by myself yeah. and just like excuse me while i kiss the sky that kind of thing um <laughs> but yeah I, I mean of course um given the the lyrics about death it's like yeah sh- so i can die shut the shut the lid of the coffin um yeah I, I that's know. what i was thinking yeah that's what i was thinking too and then i was thinking of that that instrumental stuff at the end you know with the the loud quiet. Like I was almost thinking that this is kind of what grief does. You know, when somebody close to you dies, there's a, a, a place where you kind of get back to normal life yeah, and you're kind of started to, to be able to function. And then all of a sudden the memory comes back and you just have this, you know, crazy moment. And then, you know, it kind of comes back down and you're, you know, you still got to live life, but you're still kind of affected. You never totally mm-hmm. fully recover yeah. when somebody close to you dies in such a tragic way like that. Um, yeah, this song it's a song that's so full of empathy on all sides, I think. You know, it really tries to present the the side of the addict and the side of the um of the person grieving for for a loss. Yeah. And you mentioned that line, "Have you ever been free?" It's so interesting and and challenging to me. Uh you're probably like me in that like I've I've never done heroin either and I I'm uh, uh you know my plan is to stay far away from it for my entire life but I bet if you're like me you have wondered what it's like right I'm sure everyone mm-hmm. has and uh I I just remember my father 
before long before I was born, he was a probation officer in, uh, in New Jersey, I believe uh, Bergen County. And mm-hmm. something that he's told me um, a few times, like a, a story that I've heard a few times, is he was talking to someone who was a heroin user. And this guy said to him at some point, do you know what it's like to do heroin? It's like, remember, do you remember when you were a little kid and it would be Christmas morning and it would be dark and you'd go downstairs and you'd see the Christmas tree with all the lights on and all these presents under the tree and you were just overjoyed? Like, heroin is a hundred times better than that. <laughs> and Interesting. And that's the kind of thing that can <laughs> really scare you away from ever trying a drug like that, right? Um, yeah. But, wow. but yeah, like the line, yeah, have you ever been free? That's like, that's the, that's the real line of, of an addict, like challenging somebody else. Like you just, you don't understand. Um, and I've, I've read something that's like said doing heroin is like, you know, dropping a load of weights that you didn't even know you were carrying around. Right. There's like, uh, people people describe it in these glowing terms like the the first few times you do it before it becomes just this this horrible thing yeah and then how it just enslaves you it, it it's promising yeah kind of nirvana but it it, it it delivers hell i mean in the sense of just i mean i i just when i think about those lines it's like it, it like ian said when he responded to you that you know it could be not just even about drugs or addiction it can just be about anything i mean all of us if we're honest have things in our life that you know we we struggle with or that we you know we go to to just i don't know numb out mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh it's promising kind of some freedom but we it's that paradox it's promising freedom but it it's delivering slavery and uh, you know just as a personal reflection you know as a priest i you know i hear <laughs> confessions <laughs> And, uh, you know, people just in that place kind of open up their hearts uh, in a very kind of intimate way of just revealing kind of who they really are and, and where where are the ways in which they are enslaved to something. And so it's such a beautiful moment to be able to, I don't know, just kind of encourage somebody in the midst of that moment. <laughs> Yeah, you know, to kind of remind them of like where true freedom lies. It's not in being enslaved to these things, but you know, to be free from those things. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It just, I was, <laughs> I always feel like with Ian, he, he just kind of has this. He would probably laugh maybe if he heard this, but it, I, I feel like he almost has kind of a pastoral uh, sense about him, you know, with his <laughs> empathy, um, and the way he's kind of like a, you know a father in a way to kind of a, a certain generation of folks like myself. Um, I think, I I think that's totally legitimate to say for sure. I think they even joke about an instrument. Like they were talking about somebody thinks that we're a bunch of monks or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and anyways, I did find out too, Ian has a good friend, I think that was from DC uh, that became a nun up in Alaska, an Orthodox None. Oh, really? And so there is some like weird connection where he has gone when they've played up there. He has gone up to visit her, and hmm. um, so it's just kind of a weird coming together of these different worlds. You know, um, you you mentioned the Velvet Underground song "Heroin," and 
as I said, I was thinking about that too. And mm-hmm. I was wondering about the sort of person who who does start doing hard drugs like this and if they if they had ever listened to these songs and I kind of feel like I kind of feel like songs like Shut the Door and Heroin like as as harrowing as they can be from a certain perspective I wonder if they really like uh, prevent people from from doing that like I I don't feel like it's I mean obviously the perspective this was written in is ultimately sort of anti-drug um mm-hmm. but something about it like I mean more so with heroin I I just I can't help thinking that I feel like probably a lot of people tried heroin for the first time after hearing that song because it's like in a way it's terrible but there is a certain brand of like young sort of self-destructive but also feeling like too powerful to die uh young person who's like sees a certain romance in a song like that and it's like yeah that's not hearing that song is not going to deter me from doing heroin um bring it on yeah well it's funny uh you know i i got on a few websites where people were talking about the meanings <laughs> for, for shut the door, you know, on these like song lyric sites. Yeah. And there was a little thread where people were talking about how they love uh, listening to Fugazi while they're completely <laughs> wasted. And, and like, and when they're sober, they don't, they're totally, they think Fugazi is totally boring. So <laughs> I thought that was all right. Interesting. <laughs> well, and I feel like Ian isn't trying to necessarily talk people into giving up drugs by, Oh, if you're going to listen to this song, I feel like he's kind of has passed that ideological point and is more, he's just trying to empathize and maybe point out to those maybe who are struggling with it. You know, these questions about, am I really free? Yeah. Have I been cruel to the people around me to maybe get folks thinking on a deeper level about it rather than just, you know, with that straight edge, that song, minor threat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think it's, it's a song that's like the point is necessarily to be anti-drug, but, um, but yeah, to, to simultaneously explain how he sees, um, drugs and, and addiction and also explore, um, how he, he feels people in the thrall of addiction, might feel about it so it's very it's really fascinating from that point of view yeah yeah absolutely let's touch on the sonic qualities of this a little bit and i i I just wanted to say off the bat that like i remember in high school this song it would i think it would be mainly this song and turnover were the ones that i would put on and play guitar along to um for some Mm -hmm. reason it just it just really grabbed me as something that you could you know grab a guitar and and take part and I don't feel that way with a lot of Fugazi songs that are maybe a little more um, complex and, and hard to play. Um, but I could, even as a beginner, I could do something along with this song and and enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and as a bass player, I mean, I think this is one of the first songs I probably tried to learn. Because, <laughs> I mean, when that when that drum and bass groove come in, you know, that first time... It's just like, oh man, I yeah. gotta learn this. This is so great. Um, and then at the end, when it's you know that juxtaposition of the the crazy you know guitar coming in for that moment and then drops back out, it's just and even in the instrument, you hear everybody cheering at that moment. Yeah, because <laughs> there's just this sense of oh, 
these dynamics are just so great. It they really are. Yeah. So yeah, the song starts off just like strumming these octaves, and then the drums and dissonant chords kick in. But yeah, when the bass comes in, it's a really effective combination of parts. Right? There's obviously the super smooth Joe bass line that's just really wonderful. Um, Ian's doing this sort of like slidey guitar part. It's almost like a jazz. It's almost like jazz chords or something. Yeah, almost. And then. And then Guy's playing these harmonics. And yeah, those harmonics are great. And he does it on that last, like, that last beat. Yeah. Like he, he nails it every time, and it's just so... It's it's just a very yeah. beautiful combination of sounds. Um, it's yeah. it's a real highlight for me. And I also love in... Uh, he doesn't do it on the record, really, but in, in that instrument performance, Guy is like... Um, bending those those harmonics i'm not sure is he, he's yeah. like maybe either bending the neck he's of like, his guitar or like maybe pushing on the strings uh, behind the bridge i wonder i'm not sure how he does that well and then at one time he's like he kind of shakes it yeah. you know and it kind of like it has that beautiful tone yeah um, and then when they shimmer. do that double that double feedback thing oh, in yeah. the uh, that extended instrumental part you know when ian's over there pushing his you know the neck up against the Mm-hmm. the cabinet and he's doing just he's coming up with these crazy little i don't know like overtones i don't even know how feedback works but it, it's <laughs> well the yeah. science of that it's just great i yeah and that part in instrument definitely there's um i don't know if you've uh looked into this before but yeah there's a part where they're sort of playing the tuners on top of their amps but they have like yeah i noticed that tuners that give reference tones so they're like messing around with that and something I like I like about that clip too is it's you can tell that um, you can see Brendan keeps playing but is completely drowned out. You cannot hear the drums at all in that part once they start doing the feedback. Um, I'm I'm sure you probably could in the room, but it's just like the feedback overwhelms the the recording equipment so much that Brendan is absolutely inaudible at that point until the guitars finally sort of drop out. Yeah, well, and then Joe stops playing his groove, and he starts doing these chords. Yeah, um, where he kind of goes down the neck, and then you almost feel like the song's getting ready to just implode and fall apart. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, it just it kind of fades back in, back into the groove, and it's just it's fascinating. And you're, to you're me. looking at the crowd, and the crowd's just like in rapture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating to me how much we are discussing the the performance from instrument like i i don't think i've done an episode of the podcast before where where we like do that that much with one particular performance but um i i just think that really shows how strong that is i'm sure uh when they were cutting together the film they probably recognized like this in particular is a totally gold performance like we have to right. include this <laughs> we got to use it <laughs> Yeah. Um yeah. and and yeah as you as you said before the the part where they they sort of come back after the feedback after the silence and then Guy and Ian are sort of dancing together and just lunging at each other to do these mm-hmm. um these crazy guitar parts. I mean just absolutely wonderful. Like I I don't know yes. I can't I can't remember a time at this point where I knew the song shut the door and I hadn't seen that. Um but yeah, I wonder what I had imagined like when they play this song. Um, I'm sure it, I'm sure it couldn't have been better than that. Yeah, I look back at the set list of like the shows that I saw, and 
you know, they didn't play it at some, a few of the shows that I had gone to, mm-hmm. but I'm sure I, I saw it around the time that they were, you know, started performing it. And, uh, but yeah, it's just a great live song. Speaking of great live songs, could I prevail upon you to join me for ratings? Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Where, for people who are new to the podcast, just uh, tuning in for Shut the Door, I guess I don't blame you. Uh, It's a good song. Every episode, we attempt, we try to picture the entire Fugazi discography as a spectrum from a scale of one star to five stars, and within that scale, we try to rank the song we're talking about. So, Father Christopher Foley, uh, I think you dropped a spoiler on this, but uh, yeah. I did. Give us your rating, please. I apologize. Uh, definitely a five. I mean, this is like five, five point nine. If we can, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, I think probably my favorite. I mean, all of theirs are, I wouldn't say all of theirs are fives, but I mean, this is definitely up there in my top, yeah. top 10 for sure. Yeah, me too. I, I don't think I've been able to disguise my enthusiasm uh, very well up to this point, but for me, it's a five for sure. Um, it's, uh, really transcendent, um, and yeah, as I, as I said, it's hard at this point to like divorce the the recording on repeater from that instrument performance. <laughs> but I mean, even if I I think even if I could really do that, I think it would still be a five. Um, I as I said, I just remember playing along with it uh, in my room uh, after school and just really loving it and being fascinated by the lyrics and drawn into the dynamics and and the song. So, yeah, five for me. Absolutely. Yep. Let me uh, check in with our listeners on the Alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page, uh, see how some of them feel about this song. Sean Caldwell says, Best album closer and easily one of Fugazi's best songs. Nothing less than five. Uh, John Mm -hmm. Farrar says, The version from Instrument is perfect, captures everything that's great about them. Uh, To which Rob Virginia replies, I've watched that video clip roughly 700 times in my life. Amazing. Brian Ex Officio says, was listening to Repeater at work a few years ago and this came on. I hadn't heard the record for a while and it was sort of in the background. And then this song is pretty quiet at first. Then Ian almost out of nowhere screams in my workspace, have you ever been free? And I was almost thrown from my chair like he was talking just to me. Had to take a work break because I realized that if I took the question seriously, tried to answer it, I couldn't possibly honestly say yes. And that's a harsh toke. Oh, that's wow. That's a good one. Um, Aaron, uh, hmm, this this name is going to give me trouble. Aaron Spavacek, um, Spavacek, maybe, um, says, It was my 12-year-old's favorite Fugazi song for years. It might still be. The contradictions offered in the lyrics really appealed to him. John Massel says, The best. That bass line is one of my favorites of all time. Such an incredible song. And um, Tony Ramos says, number one, Joe Lally is the John Entwistle of punk. Number two, tight, 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 that signature staccato part, you know the one, damned near Frippian. Number three, a full five out of five in the ratings for me, straight up banger. Bradford Reed Goodwin says, the tension slash release is stunning and mirrors the subject matter. The silence between the rhythmic starts and stops seems a lot like the fleeting release that heroin users must feel after injecting, which is inevitably followed by pain, chaos, and freedom's opposite. Chasing that high means shutting the door on life. This paradox, plus the empathetic lyrics and awesome bass line, make the song addictive in its own way. 
Um, Tom Goebel says, This song is a really powerful piece of art. It captures delicacy and chaos so perfectly. I love how Ian delivers the opening lines with such delicacy in the instrument live performance. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention, I forgot about this, that uh, in that instrument performance, when he sings the, the very first lines, I broke the surface so I can breathe, he sort of points to the place on his left arm where oh, one that's right. inject yep. heroin. Um, I, I thought that was an interesting touch. And finally, uh, Carl Goldspink says, through the pandemic, this has usurped Glue Man as my number one Fugazi song. Over the lockdowns, I've purchased mm. more from the Fugazi live series and Shut the Door is usually the track I look for in a performance. It's a given that on record, it's an, aso- it's an astonishing thing, but live it becomes magnetic. Like Promises, Suggestion, and Glue Man, they stretch out, but here all four of them seem to go off on their individual journeys. I could happily follow this moment of contemplation for as long as it takes until the inevitable shrieks of guitar break the piece, Ian at his most cathartic. So um, I'm not hearing a lot of people say they don't like this song, Chris. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a pretty, uh, a pretty great one. Yeah, I think the Fugazi fandom is united in, uh, in really loving this song, so... Well yeah. done. I'm glad That's you why could... I'm honored to be uh, to be <laughs> on this one for this song. <laughs> I'm glad you could join me. Let me give you an opportunity to do some plugs. Where can listeners reach you? And um, do you have anything that you want to point out to them? I, I think you were saying that your uh, that luxury is going to be playing some dates. Yeah, we're actually playing for the first time in 19 or so years. I think it is. Wow. Where we have two shows coming up. Um, one in Atlanta in September, uh, on the, I think the 23rd at the Earl. Uh, and then we're playing this festival in Birmingham, Alabama called Furnace Fest. Um, and we're pretty excited about that. And so we've been rehearsing for that and trying to dust off our (laughs) instruments and our brains about playing these songs. Um, you know, and we, all of our stuff is, you know, up on, you know, all the streaming platforms, all five of our records and on Bandcamp and you can purchase the albums. We have some new vinyl re-releases coming out of um, our third and fourth album that never got a vinyl release. Uh, and then the movie is still, you know, streaming and, um, you know, you can get that on Amazon, Parallel Love. We've, you know, we're on all the socials and uh, websites and whatnot. Great. It was really interesting to talk to you. And um, I mean, you're you're continuing to give my show representation points of, you know, the kind <laughs> of guests I'm having on. I never considered the possibility that I might be talking to a priest on this podcast. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's cool. You, you never know. <laughs> you really never know. when Once you get into this podcast game, curious things <laughs> right. happen. Right, right. Thanks again. Um, great to talk to you. Uh, as usual, listeners, you can reach me at fugaziA to Z at gmail.com. You can join that Facebook group if you want and tell me what you think about uh, the next songs that are coming up. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we'll be discussing Civ Fisted Find. Until then, keep your eyes open. <laughs> <laughs>